may be seated. We've been working our way through a sermon series on the Bride of Christ, the Church. And recently we've been looking at different core values. They are, if you will, kind of pillars in the house that is the church. And this past few weeks we've looked at teaching and learning. We've looked at prayer. We've looked at fellowship. And now we will look today at another pillar, another core value, that of corporate worship. It's kind of an interesting text we've looked at today for corporate worship. It's not, you'll notice, a text that actually involves corporate worship. But I trust you will see by the end of our time together looking at it, why I chose it as our text this morning, why I feel it helps inform and instruct and direct our corporate worship together. We'll take a look at that, but please first pause with me in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have deigned to meet with us in your holy word, that you have spoken to us is truly a blessing, a blessing we take too lightly. I pray that we would not take it lightly this morning, but that you would speak to us through your word and through your word preached in such a way as to reveal yourself and your gospel and your glory to all of us. And in so doing, I pray that we might be transformed, that we might be changed, that we might be conformed to the likeness of Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. This last Monday night, there was a hockey game between the Dallas Stars and the Columbus Blue Jackets. And in the first period of that game, Dallas forward Rich Peverly was skating around on the ice. He came to the bench after his shift ended, hopped over the boards onto the bench, whereupon he immediately collapsed and was unconscious. The game stopped. Players were very concerned. The the crowd was in hushed silence as they watched on to see what was happening as Players and medical personnel and everybody was gathering around the Dallas bench. Uh, They spirited Peverly off to a back hallway where they gave him medical attention. Doctors treated him for a cardiac event, an ailing heart. Dr. Gil Salazar said, we provided oxygen for him. We started an IV We did chest compressions on him and defibrillated him, provided some electricity to bring a rhythm back to his heart, and that was successful with one attempt, which was very reassuring, I should say so. Dr. Salazar continued, as soon as we treated him, he regained consciousness. He was alert and awake and talking to us after the event and was quickly transported to the hospital. At this point, I was able to to talk to him in the back of the ambulance. And he was able to tell me where he was and catch this. And he actually wanted to get back in the game. (laughs) 
We learn two things about this from hockey players. One is they are absolutely crazy. <laughs> Secondly, we learn that they have a passion for what they do that drives them, that motivates them, that causes them to, to only be restrained from what they are doing by the most extreme of circumstances. And even then, they still long to get back at what they're doing. Now, I'm not a hockey player. Never have been. I'm a pastor. And so I have my own biases. But I certainly wish, as I suppose most pastors do, that our attitude as a church family toward worship would be like a hockey player's attitude toward getting on the ice. That there would be nothing that could keep us from being here, that, that you'd have to strap us down on a gurney and wheel us away to keep us from being here. Now that's, that's what I would want. Now I realize that that's not always the way it's going to be. It's not just here at Calvary, and it's not just in the church today. It's always been that way. We look in Hebrews 10, where the author says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. You see, it's always that way, and it always will be that way, I assume, where, where there will be other things that creep in, you know, that... Uh, Church is important to us. Coming to worship on Sunday morning with one another is an important thing, but other things crop up and push it to the back, and it becomes our habit to not be here, or at least not our habit to always be here. I think that we would long to be here more if we had a proper understanding of what exactly it is that we are doing when we come here. And that's where this text today helps inform us. Because in this text, though it's not exactly a pattern about corporate worship, it is a, a text that sets a pattern that is very applicable to our corporate worship. It sets a pattern that acknowledges certain things. And those things should shape what we do here every Sunday. First of all, we see in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah acknowledges the glory of God. And he acknowledges it first in his sovereignty. Isaiah 6 verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I mentioned before how this is filled with meaning. It's telling us about not just the time and place, but it is telling us what's going on. Uzziah has died. One commentator put it this way. It was in this year that Israel as a people was given up to hardness of heart and as a kingdom and country to devastation and annihilation by the imperial power of the world. The national glory of Israel died out with King Uzziah. You see, this is, this is a bad time, a time where things had been good, but now... They've turned toward the worse. It seems things are out of control. In America, I find that about half the people feel this way every time there's an election, right? Half the people say, oh my goodness, now that that party is in power, things are completely out of control. 
Things are lost. The world is careening straight toward hell. And then four years later, the other party gets elected in. And the other 50% of the people say, oh my goodness, now things are totally lost. So forth and so on. And yet I think both sides would do well to consider the perspective of Isaiah here as he sees something where that really was happening in his national context. What does he say? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now when we see the word Lord in the Old Testament, it can be one of two different things. There, there are times where the word Lord is printed in all capital letters. And when we see that, we know that what that is, is that is actually the, the name, the proper name of God, Yahweh. But they would not use that name. They, they, out of deference to God and a desire to not misuse his name, they refused to speak his name. So what they would say whenever they came across that word is they would say Adonai, which is the word Lord. And so when we see that printed out in caps like we do in uh, verse 3, I believe, what is saying there is that that is the proper name of God. But when we see the word Lord printed out with a capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, that, that is the word Adonai, which is basically meaning, if, if we wanted to try to get our best translation, it would be Sovereign One. And so what Isaiah is saying, he's saying, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the sovereign one sitting upon the throne. It's kind of like we, we might hear in, in some monarchy when a king died. What, what is it that the herald proclaims? It says, the king is dead. Long live the king. Because you see there's a king other than the king who has died who's now there. But this king this sovereign that Isaiah is seeing upon the throne is not the child of the former monarch. Rather, he is a sovereign above that king. He is a sovereign who is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the one above all things. And he says, even though nationalistically this looks like a really bad time, even though it looks as though things are out of control, even though it seems the economy is bad, and it seems that unemployment is up and health care is problems and, and crime is up and, and social security is in trouble and there are all these problems. Even so, the Lord is sitting upon his throne. What a wonderful comfort this is that we can say the same thing even in the midst of all of our difficulties, in the midst of all our troubles. So we acknowledge the glory of God in his sovereignty. We also acknowledge it, as Isaiah did, in the fact that he is awe-inspiring. What does Isaiah say in verse 1? He is, saw him seated on the throne, high and lifted up, literally exalted, lifted up high, raised up. And he goes on to say, the train of his robe filled the temple. 
You remember back a couple decades ago when Prince Charles and Lady Diana got married and she had the dress with the train that was 25 feet long. It ran down the aisle 25 feet. I read a thing about it said that when they got in the carriage afterwards, after the marriage, said that, that the train of her dress filled the carriage. <laughs> that was awe-inspiring. It took your breath away. And it was nothing compared to the train of the robe of the Lord as he is seated upon, seated upon his throne. For his train does not just fill a carriage, it filled the temple. The whole temple. Awe-inspiring is this God. And he is holy. For above him stood the seraphim, we read. The seraphim are, are angels, a class of angels. It literally means burning ones. And these angels are not like the cute little cupids that you'll see in a Hallmark store in early February. Rather, they are fearsome, fearful creations. Creatures who, who, whenever men happen upon them, they have to say to the men, Fear not, do not be afraid. And so these beings, with six wings two of which fly, but then there's four other wings. We see the two, they cover their face, no doubt shielding their eyes from the glory of God, which is so wonderful, so awesome, that they cannot even behold it. And then two other wings covering their feet. Some commentators suggest that it is as Moses, when he came into the presence of God and and asked him that he would be able to gaze upon his glory and and the Lord said to him I will not permit you to see my glory but I will pass by and you can you can see the backside of my glory the the afterglow if you will of my glory but what happened before that he had told him take off his shoes for the place where you are standing is holy ground and so some commentators suggest maybe this coming into the presence of God is holy ground so they cover their feet for that reason others suggest that Perhaps they're covering their feet, and, and you can imagine if, if these were two big wings I had here, and I took my right wing and covered my left foot, and my left wing and covered my right foot. I'm not just covering my feet at that time, am I? But I'm really covering my whole body. I'm, I'm shielding my whole self at that point. And perhaps they shield their body and legs and feet with the two wings and and the other two shielding their upper part and their face so that their whole body is shielded from the glory of God, which is too intense for them to even be in the presence of. Perhaps, we don't know for sure, but we do know what they say, what they do as they fly about there. They call out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They call this out to each other. In, in Hebrew, they, they didn't have uh, fonts with bold print and 
underlining and, and exclamation marks, the way that they would show emphasis is by the repetition of words. So they would say a word twice, and that would be the way that they would underline it, the way they would reinforce its importance. But here we see not only a twofold repetition, but a threefold repetition. That's the only place in the Hebrew Bible where there is a threefold repetition. It is when God is referred to as holy, holy, holy. He is the epitome of holiness. He is the personification of holiness. He is holy. And the seraphim proclaim the glory of God in his holiness. And that is what we are to do as well. We are created to proclaim God's glory, not just to speak about his glory, but to proclaim his glory through our way of life, to proclaim his glory by coming here on Sunday mornings and singing hymns to his glory and praying and listening to his word and and speaking his word and, and hearing it preached. And indeed, those are ways that we proclaim his glory, but we also proclaim his glory by the way we live our life in our relationships with our neighbors, by the excellency with which we do our jobs, by the kindness we show to others, by the the relationships that we nurture and build up, by the kind of parent we are, by the kind of child we are, by the kind of friend we are, by the kind of spouse we are. Through all these things we can bring glory to God. We proclaim his glory and it will permeate the entire earth. The whole earth is full of his glory, the seraphim say. And so should it be in our lives. The whole of our lives should proclaim his glory no matter where we are. And we see in verse 4, this glory, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. The foundations shaking. Just imagine the awesomeness of that. Have you ever been in an earthquake? Uh, not, not one of those things where like there was an earthquake 500 miles away and, and somebody said, did, did you feel that earthquake earlier? Yeah, I think I might have. I don't know, I, you know. Either that or I lost my footing. I'm not sure. But, you know, but, but a real earthquake. I've not. I've not been in it. But I've heard people talk about being you know, out in California maybe during one of the big earthquakes. And how, how fearsome it is when the whole building is shaking. How awesome it is. So awesome is the glory of God. And as we see... Smoke filling the temple. We realize that that whenever we see smoke or a cloud in the Bible, immediately your mind should go to glory. This is the glory of God. It is it is veiled behind a cloud, veiled behind smoke, time and time and time again throughout Scripture. And so that is what we are seeing here is the glory of God filling the temple. It is acknowledged by Isaiah. But he not only acknowledges the glory of God, he also acknowledges his own brokenness. And I said, in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. You see, Isaiah was the best mankind had to offer. He was a prophet. 
perhaps the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. That's pretty special stuff. He's, he's pretty high on the charts when it comes to the who's who of the Old Testament. And yet, we don't see him here reading his resume, saying how awesome he is, bragging on himself. No, what we see him saying is, woe is me. See, a prophet had the job of, we, we think of prophets, we think of prophets as people who tell the future. And, and indeed, there's a sense in which that was the case. But more commonly, prophets served a function of being, being people who would uh, be advocates for the covenant. And they would proclaim covenant blessings, and they would proclaim covenant curses. And often those curses would come in the phrase of, woe be to you. And so here he is doing this, but he's not proclaiming this curse against someone else. He's proclaiming it against himself. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am lost. I am undone. I am, I am silent, literally, is the word there. You see, he says, there, there is nothing I can say in reaction to my sin here. There, there's no excuse I can make. There's no explanation. There's no way I can talk my way out of this. I don't know about you. Whenever somebody accuses me, and accuses me even rightly of something for which I am guilty, my natural response in my flesh is to want to say, yeah, but... Well, you don't understand. You see, there's, there's um, some circumstances. Uh, well, yeah, but, but, but you first did this. That's my response. My response is to want to make excuses. See, I don't want to just admit that I was wrong. I want to make excuses. I want to show why it's not really a big deal or why I didn't really do what you think I did or why... It appears this way, but Isaiah has none of this here. He says, I am silent. I am undone. I am lost. I stand to be judged, and it is not pretty. He says, I'm being judged for my act of sin, for those things that I have done personally, actively. What is Isaiah's job? He's a prophet. You see, so, so he is supposed to speak. That is what he is commissioned by God to do. And what is the very thing to which he points? He says, I am a man of unclean lips. The very thing I've been commissioned to do, I cannot do rightly because of my sin. And beyond that, it's not just that sin that I actively participate in. Even if I was able to wash my mouth... <laughs> I still am a member of an unclean people. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, I I inherit this sinful nature as a result of being part of mankind. What's caused him to come to this revelation? What has made him all of a sudden in verse 5 realize that this is the case, that, that he is woefully inadequate for whatever he would be called to? Well, he tells us. He says, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. 
You see, when we see God, it changes everything. When Isaiah saw God for the first time, he truly saw himself. You see, compared to bad people, most of us are are pretty good, right? I, I think we could probably say that. And compared to good people, well, most of us, or at least some of us, are okay. But compared to a holy God, there is not a single one of us who is not woefully inadequate, falling terribly far short, wanting in every way. And as a result, we need to know two things. We need to know the standard by which we are judged. And we need to know the God who offers us his grace freely in Christ Jesus. Isaiah acknowledges God's glory. He acknowledges his own brokenness. And he acknowledges God's atoning work. Then one of the seraphim in verse 6 flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Notice how God takes the initiative here. It is God who acts first. It's not Isaiah who said, you know what I think I need to do? I I think I need to have a vision. So, So maybe I'll have a vision today. No, God grants him this vision in Isaiah 6. And in the vision, it's not so much Isaiah saying, I need forgiveness, therefore I'm going to go out and do something about it. But rather, this angel, this seraphim, this burning one, comes and purges the sin from Isaiah's lips in this picture, in this vision. His sin, we are told there, is atoned for. Literally, it is covered, is the word that could fit there. So his sin is covered, which should cause us to think of two things. First of all, it causes me anyway to have my mind go all the way back to Genesis. Remember in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have sinned. They've given in to temptation. And we're told that Adam heard God walking in the garden and he hid himself from God. Why did he hide himself? We're told that it is because he was naked. Well, God finds him and confronts him, accuses him, and pronounces cursings against him, ultimately evicting him from the garden. But first, he does one other thing. In Genesis 3, 21... It says, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. See, 
He was naked. He needed a covering because all that he was was exposed, laid bare. Just as it is, as Isaiah comes before God and sees God's glory, he realizes his own sinfulness and it is laid bare. And he needs a covering. And so it is in Genesis 3 that God provided a covering in the form of an animal skin. Where did the animal skin come from? It's not like there was an animal skin store down the road. Clearly he killed an animal. God took an animal and slew the animal sacrificially for Adam and Eve. That by that animal's skin they might be covered. And this, of course, should point us forward to Christ Jesus our Lord. For he too takes our sin away, not like the seraph with a coal from the altar, but with his own blood poured out on Calvary's cross, with his own blood shed for us that we too might be clothed by his robes of righteousness, no longer having our sin exposed, laid bare, but rather having it covered and taken away and atoned for by his sacrifice. He truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if we acknowledge God's glory and our brokenness and his atoning work, then finally we need to acknowledge with Isaiah our responsibility to respond. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He who just moments before had lamented his complete inability to be of any service to God. Woe am I, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now, instead, is not only willing, but anxious to be used by God for his glory in his service. You know, I'm often amazed when I think about the World War II generation, the greatest generation that's been called. Many of you are members of that generation, and I, I think to how many people in that generation were so quick to sign up, to, to, to head off to battle, to volunteer out of a sense of, of duty and responsibility and great blessing that had been bestowed upon them needing to do something to respond to that. They couldn't wait to volunteer. And so it is with Isaiah here. His commitment to God and his sense of having been so blessed creates in him a longing, a passion to tell others, to to share this with others, to serve God in his calling on his life. Before Christ left, he commissioned his disciples. He said, go and make disciples. That was the job he gave to them. And that is the job that we have as the church. 
Part of that is sending forth the word to other places. Part of that is building up the people who are here in our midst. We are to make disciples. And we need to look at ourselves and say, are we contributing to that effort? Not just we as individuals, but we as a church. Both, as individuals and as a body. What are we doing to contribute to that? I hope and I pray that we are contributing to that effort, that we are growing in our ability to do that. By God's grace, we are and we will. Not just doing it out of duty, but out of thankfulness, out of a passion to serve him, realizing how greatly we've been blessed. And, and the best thing to fuel this passion, the best thing to, to enable us to do this, is to be reminded constantly of this gospel pattern. This gospel pattern that we've looked at today. This is why we often begin our worship with a triumphal type hymn, an exalting type hymn that, that lifts us up into the very throne room of God. And why when we look at God and behold God in his glory, we are forced to then recognize our own sin and we corporately confess our sin together in worship. You see, because the church is not a place for those who are the picture of spiritual health. It is like a hospital where we go to to be made spiritually well when our hearts are failing or even have failed. So we realize where we are. We stand. We confess our sin. And then each week we hear God's word proclaiming the message of his gospel, his grace, his atoning work on our behalf. And we, who were dead, are brought back to life. And we respond by saying, let me back in the game. Put me back out on the ice. I want to be a part of this. Let us go into our week, this week, and every week, energized by the gospel, ready to serve God, and longing to return one week later that we might do it all over again. Amen. Our Father, we pray to you now that you would increase in our hearts that passion for you, a love and a longing for you. Make us better servants. Make us more faithful servants. Make us those who long to worship you, not just so that we might mark that off on our list of things to do, but that we might be re-energized for your good, for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please rise and sing with me our closing hymn, hymn number 225. Come Christians, join to sing.